0: Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sable, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, the second part of my interview with Morgan Snyder, Senior Program Officer for the Foundation's Environment Program and the Foundation's Colorado River Initiative. Coming up, I talk with Morgan about the role of stored water in making up for diminished surface water supplies and how the foundation is thinking about fire and forests. You know, you talked about distributed infrastructure, you talked about wetlands, you talked about holding water in a distributed way and my mind immediately went below ground. Mm -hmm. So I like to say that, you know, instead of thinking of aquifers as tragically empty, they're an opportunity to fill. They're the reservoirs of the future. And like you said, there isn't really that much political will or even site locations to do another Lake Mead or Lake Powell. And we don't have the water to fill it anyway. On the other hand, climate change. And again, there's, you know, in the West, oh, we don't have enough water. But in some places we have too much water sometimes. That's certainly true with atmospheric rivers in California. And so I wonder a lot about how we could manage the extremes on the surface to store more underground where are we doing things like this well in the west from your perspective
1: yeah ground we need to be actively managing our groundwater just like we manage our surface water and then that alone is a big ask in some places like in rural arizona there's no management regime for groundwater and you're seeing New agriculture coming into areas that are already extremely parched and drilling a thousand foot well and forcing neighboring communities or uh, neighboring farms to drill deeper wells as well. So you're just, you know, race to the bottom. I see there's just a huge, uh, a lot of hope in nature based solutions, to natural infrastructure to. Beavers to um, different rock detention structures to strategically using water that has, you know, gone through our sewers, been treated by a wastewater plant. And the water that's coming on the end of that can be strategically used to recharge our groundwater. So we can be pulling water up, treating it, drinking it using it in our, our homes and in our our um, factories, and then we bring it back to a wastewater treatment plant and recharge it. Um, where An example that I've spent a lot of time working on was in the, um, the San Pedro River in southeastern Arizona. Um, and this is a, a river that has been slowly disappearing. The last remaining desert rivers are in Arizona are in rural Arizona are in areas where the groundwater isn't managed and where uh the explosion of new pumps and new groundwater pumps for residential and industrial uses and agricultural uses is happening faster than anyone ever imagined and we're pumping more water out than we should through leaving the aquifers with less capacity and we're not managing it as a limited resource that we need not just for today but 100 years from now. So within the um, San Pedro River we've helped develop this program called the Cochise Conservation and Recharge Network and direct collaboration with the the locals, right? Like the communities who live there now See the problem better than you know me and my office here, in, in Washington D.C. And so we've been working really closely with Cochise County, City of Sierra Vista, also Bureau of Land Management, and the Nature Conservancy, and a host of other partners to be able to better spatially define like where are we pumping too much water out? Where would it make sense to? Recharge water. So let's create uh, recharge points and strategically use whether it be that affluent from the wastewater treatment plant I mentioned, or uh, flood flows, and be able to take that water, recharge it, and and build a base of groundwater underneath that river so that it's protected into the future, while at the same time manage the amount of water we're pumping out in in any one uh, year so that it is uh, adapted to the amount of water that is actually going naturally into those aquifers in any one year. So we're balancing out the demands with the supplies while also augmenting the amount of water that is um, going into the groundwater by creating new recharge points. And these recharge points can be berms, that are fairly large and constructed with concrete, or they can be smaller, hand laid, low tech, uh, process based restoration, which is just like rocks that you put into stream beds and you build them up and you create these bumps for the water so that they slow down in these bigger rain events and it gives an opportunity to be recharged and you know groundwater recharge. And managing for these types of storm events are going to be and are already critical opportunities for how we manage flood events, how we manage for balancing out our groundwater demands, how we reduce erosion, how we improve water quality. And all this can be done in fairly Low cost when you're comparing it to the cost of new large dams. And it can be done in a distributed way throughout a watershed so that you are building up water tables and improving communities' water security and achieving environmental uplift at the same
0: time. That's great. And having worked at the San Pedro River mostly on riparian food webs for over a decade, in my early days, I know that area re- very well, and I know that it's come a long way in, ter- in terms of sustainability, and, and certainly in terms of sort of innovation of strategies and, and partnerships. I mean, Fort Huachuca also being a, a key player there the uh, and DoD, right? Um, Absolutely. So let's shift over to California, and the context for for this is it's the same question, and I'll say it again later, but. Context for this is Arizona's had the Groundwater Management Act since 1980, really only relevant to to five active management areas. As you said, lots of rural Arizona is still not managed for groundwater in a cohesive manner. California's system, much more comprehensive, but came um, 30 years later. Tell me what you think about the potential efficacy of SIGMA compared to the GMA in Arizona. And second question is, do we need to think about new innovations of the GMA in Arizona, given that Sigma is trying something new? Are there lessons to be learned?
1: I think it's fabulous that California took the step that they did with Sigma to more seriously manage their groundwater and tackling groundwater overdraft, creating whole new governance structures and new institutions to be able to manage that and it's just not something that's meant to happen over, you know, a couple of years time but it's tech decades to be able to adjust to managing our resources in a in a whole new way. And you know, I I've, I think California is also taking some steps to take some sting out of the types of changes that are necessary. Um where I I don't I can't quote the name of the the bill or whatever but they're basically putting public money out there to help areas where they are massively overdrafting to help them transition from the consumption of of water to to doing something else so it's like helping agriculture transition to lower water use crops to like ultimately getting to the point where you you have to be able to help people who are either homeowners, landowners, water right holders to uh, adjust to this. And it doesn't mean that there, it is pain-free, right? Like all of this work we're talking about is not pain-free. It is all about shared pain in order for us to actually get to a point where we have increased security and certainty around our long-term water resources. And we we see California putting money behind helping communities at a local level decide how to use those state and also federal resources, help make these shifts locally and adapt to the amount of water that is actually there. It's also incentivizing more recharge projects. It's incentivizing to be able to manage surface water and groundwater together so that we are managing all of our water as one water. And I think the ability of California to implement those throughout their whole state is an enormous challenge that won't, again, it's gonna take another 10 to 20 years to really see the full fruition. But the Groundwater Management Act in Arizona in 1980, that gave the Phoenix Sun Corridor And Central Arizona, the certainty they needed to be able to grow the prolific economy that exists there now. And it has done an incredibly good job. And what I fear now is that with the reductions to the Colorado River water that's coming, that is hitting Arizona now and and increasing in, in Arizona, You're going to see a push to undermine the Groundwater Management Act as a solution. And those are not solutions. Those are digging uh, a deeper hole for ourselves. And, And we need to continue to protect and reinforce the Groundwater Management Act in Arizona. But we also need to expand the amount of groundwater that's managed in Arizona to take on the whole state just like California did. And to me, like, those are the biggest things. We need to take on, manage all groundwater, and manage it in, together with surface water. And that's what California is doing. And Arizona is next in my mind. They, there's one and a half million people who live in rural Arizona where there is no groundwater management regime right now. And the risks to people the risks to, you know, the last remaining desert rivers in our Southwest United States, they're, they're just extreme, especially with uh, the impacts of climate change right now. It's something where California is helping address this and focused on not just managing the resource, but the impacts of what managing that resources mean to communities and landowners. And, and that was what I think is it's really important that California is showing communities there, but also showing a way for, for Arizona and how they could be doing it.
0: Couple points that I really like there. One, the the notion of shared pain, maybe we'll we'll call this podcast this this episode shared pain for <laughs> thriving by water later.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I like let's talk about storage and not numbers, but um roughly I know that that Arizona's put away north of 12, 12 million acre feet underground over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of that's been happening for a long time in Tucson. More of it's been happening in Phoenix. So lots of progress has been made and that's, you know, water borrowed from the surface water system in a lot of cases, right? Yeah. So putting that issue aside, and I definitely was thinking about that while I was on Lake Powell. Do you think that that, insurance policy that stored water is going to come into play as we go into these big surface water cuts and and what's your what's your feeling on how important it's going to be
1: Yeah, it it's coming into play already and you're seeing that slug of water, you know, like you, you said 12 million acre-feet. It's it's a huge amount of water that Arizona has proactively stored underground because they knew this day was coming. And some of the challenges is that they actually haven't built all the infrastructure needed to be able to pull it all out, like the groundwater pumps that are necessary to pull it all out. And they're not completely certain about the quality of all that water that has been stored. Some of that is to be figured out, right? But it it's going to allow Arizona and a lot of metropolitan areas in Arizona to continue to thrive for, you know, the next 10 plus years While we have to go through this massive reduction in water use and a really cultural mindset shift where we're using less water and less water and we're sort of this tightening our water belts while at the same time allowing us to continue to have thriving communities. And so I think Arizona saw this coming, they've been planning for it. This is not a surprise. Climate change is not a surprise. The amount of impact that we're seeing to our water systems not necessarily a surprise to the water management community either, right? Like, we've been thinking about this for decades in advance, and we're now finally here where that groundwater resource that Arizona has stored is, we should be celebrating all the water managers who who thought to do that for for the last, you know, uh, couple of decades. But we also know that it is extremely limited. And so our approach to using that water needs to be aligned with the scarcity of that water.
0: Right. Just to give a visual, that quantity of of water stored underground is equivalent to approximately a third of one of the two big lakes.
1: Yeah.
0: And so it's a lot, but it's not a 10-year supply.
1: What I hear people saying in... Like the central Arizona area is like, it'll help us help the central Arizona area give them that 10 year buffer window that is needed to actually do a lot of the infrastructure and changes or water use, consumptive water use changes that are needed. So it is a, you're right, probably not totally equating to a 10 year supply, but it gives them that next 10 years to be able to adapt to the the fundamental reductions in water use that or water availability coming from the Colorado River.
0: Right. One last question on the groundwater topic. Let's go back to California. Talked about atmospheric rivers a couple of times. I think one of the intervention strategies that California is taking with Sigma, that's really interesting and I think has a lot of promise is flood mar, the capture of flood water and, and often use of it in agricultural land that's not currently producing as a makeshift storage basin, you know, recharge basin, if you will. And so capturing this hard to predict, but extremely high quantity events on the surface water side of things and putting it underground. Are there places you think that could work outside of California? I mean, I think California has been pretty innovative, but.
1: Yeah, I think with monsoons in the Southwest, it's fairly similar, right? You've got huge rain events that are also hard to predict but our opportunities right that that is water coming in a significant quantity over a short period of time and we would be smart to be able to help capture that and it's not necessarily possible or realistic to have physical concrete dams everywhere so going ahead and capturing in that and recharging it underground that is the best available reservoir that we uh, we have and we don't really have to pay for, right? It is already there and it's just waiting for, for us to be able to manage better. And so I think this is both, you brought up the example of, you know, using some agricultural land in, in a smart way for recharge. It is also investing in like the wet meadows, investing in, you know, beavers and wetlands, because they also do a lot of this groundwater recharge but do it in a much more distributed way which allows you to kind of meet the water where it hits the land when it hits the land and you don't have to be guessing it's in it's going to come down on this little tributary of a river or that little tributary two valleys over i think that's going to be a critical component of how we are ultimately capturing the benefit of monsoons or atmospheric rivers and using that water that comes down for long-term benefit and also managing, as I said this before, but managing erosion, managing water quality. You get so many co-benefits from being able to capture these high-flow events, slow it down, and let it infiltrate into the ground, build up groundwater levels. So that you can, you have water to use when we need it.
0: Coming up, I ask Morgan about what lessons from the West and water apply to the Mississippi. And is farmland natural infrastructure? Stay tuned. I'm glad you made the connect back to natural infrastructure. Because that, that ties a ribbon around those first two topics. And so let's let's turn to fire. hmm you know this year, for the most part, although this is not true everywhere, certainly not everywhere, has been better than previous years, especially the year during the pandemic um, when the pandemic started. But everything is on fire, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. general and and I wonder sometimes out loud whether any of the forests that we have today are going to be here, you know after my lifetime. and so you tell me about projects that you all are doing. Um at the Walton Family Foundation in this realm, like what what kind of strategies are you incentivizing, and what innovations are coming out of the the work that you're doing there?
1: I grew up out west. I grew up in California, Santa Cruz, California, you know Redwoods, um, the beach. And two years ago, that a year and a half ago, where I was spending some time, and the um, Santa Cruz Mountains were on fire. And it's like the doomsday scenario, you know, your forests are on fire and that's also where your water supply is coming from. And I mean, after this magical moment that was just so sad and also beautiful where it's like the forest was on fire and then you saw the embers from that forest fire land in the ocean. And then like a few days later, coming to the beach in the morning and you could see the high tide mark on the beach where there's just this black pencil mark of coal or not coal it's the ashes and so you've seen like the forest that used to be up in those mountains is now sitting in a line the high tide mark on the beach and so the fire out west the fires out west are a significant problem that are we have to get under control. And a lot of that is like, how are we managing our forest? And how are we making sure that fire is a part of our landscape, but isn't running out of control? So some of this is like work that we're not deeply investing in ourselves. Like we're not deeply investing in forest management and fire management. There is a whole slew of folks who are investing deeply in that and are more well-suited to invest in that. But we see the opportunity to manage our forest better in a way that protects the long-term health of our water supplies. And so that could be things like targeted forest thinning, investing in not just the forest itself, but the meadows, the wet meadows, the investing in the wetlands that become fire breaks, natural fire breaks for for fires to help slow down fires to keep them from going out of control. I have the same worries you do. Like are all of our forests going to just eventually burn at some point out West anyway, I'm hopeful that we are going to get to a point where we're able to like take the necessary management actions to be able to keep that from becoming a reality, but it isn't a, um, it isn't something that is a, a, Significant part of our our
0: portfolio. Yeah, and so maybe just to wrap that up, that topic. I think I'm not a doomsday sayer, but I worry, just like you articulated, about what the future of forests is going to look like in 30 years. And I think that one thing that's probably not well articulated or or put into action and in a systematic way, it might be done in some locations, is asking the question. Which ones are definitely going to be gone, and which ones are not, and prioritizing again, creating pipelines of projects that are meaningful over the long haul. But to pivot back to something that might be more in the realm of of Walton Family Foundation, like I was on a backpacking trip this summer in the Stanislaus Basin. Stanislaus is a place where flood Mar is being piloted. It also is right next to Yosemite, which was on fire, and you know, I would say a third of the upper basin was burned down in the last five years. Like it was just impressive how much forest was lost there. And it made me think about the connectivity between these issues, right? You've got forest burning, you've got increased erosion, which goes into the reservoirs and limits your ability to capture that flood water that you're going to be able to use for flood mar. What do you see in terms of not programmatic initiatives but more like how do you incentivize the connection of these issues so that we can get to more wholesome water resource management you know i don't want to use integrated there
1: you know a lot of our forests out west a lot of our um a lot of the land base out west is owned by the public right forest service bureau land management two really big ones and those agencies and and i I would would call out euro land management as well like they are seeing this problem differently now than they did you know 10 years ago where they are looking at it in terms of managing the risk of wildfires and trying to get ahead of that and you, you see like BLM has a new like five-year aquatic strategy. I, I can't remember the full title of it, but it's just like reflecting that these agency leaders are beginning to say, we have to take a different approach because what we're doing isn't working. And they see the, the same sort of interconnectivity that you just mentioned. And I think that's where leadership from the federal agencies, but also the state-based, you know, chapters or leaders from those agencies, working in collaboration with the water utilities, who are incredibly invested in their watersheds, to collaboratively solve for these these, you know, landscape-scale challenges. And while it's getting you know hotter and and drier, um, and we've allowed these forests to, to overgrow and not be subjected to intermittent fires, uh, controlled burns. You know, we've we've put ourselves into this scenario, and we now need to get ourselves out of it. And and it's going to take years of different management actions and different approaches, but it it takes getting that kind of land base of Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, those water utilities who care about their watersheds, and also a big part of the land base is the the tribal nations who have huge interests in managing their their land and their watersheds just as much as as any, anyone else and their water rights <laughs> and most importantly yes their their water rights and uh, exerting their sovereignty and self-determination
0: okay let's see fire gets us Closer to my home, but not quite being at Tulane. So I got to pull this back to the Mississippi a little bit and it. yeah, And it's related to, to the Walton Family Foundation portfolio. So I think it's relevant. Let's start with the fact that plus or minus half of the Mississippi is in the West, the basin, right? Yep. If you put some error bars around the 100th Meridian, right? Mm-hmm. What kinds of things that work in the West are relevant to the Mississippi? This is probably the hardest question of this section because I think most people <laughs> don't think of the Mississippi as being west, but when you think about, you know, Yellowstone River floods, for example, are a Mississippi Basin problem, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and we look at the Mississippi from a we got have we have an excess of of water. We have flood events. We have water quality problems. Um, we have this gigantic dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, but I mean I, I also did help lead a lot of our work in the Mississippi alluvial valley so this is like Arkansas Louisiana Mississippi just north of where you are and uh, we did a, we were implementing a lot of you know natural infrastructure uh, reforestation of frequently flooded agricultural land for the benefit of water quality for the benefit of habitat but also, for the benefit of recreation, you know, people who want to use that land for for hunting or fishing. And the biggest surprise I had as a westerner working in the Arkansas Delta there was there was there it was, or I'd say there still is a nine million acre foot groundwater hole on the eastern side of Arkansas because irrigation, has increased so much in in this in this uh, alluvial valley that all the majority of that water is being pumped from the ground and put on those crops and it's not getting back into that that aquifer and so I was really surprised a few years ago it was probably like 8 years 6 seven, 6 or 7 years ago where Arkansas's water plan their state water plan the number one issue for them was groundwater overdraft. And it's like, that's not something that you think about at all. But you you see groundwater overdraft being a national problem, right? Just like you see it out west. And uh, finding ways to conjunctively manage our water, groundwater and our surface water together, and taking them as two critical resources that are uh, supplying the same thing, water, that we all need, and 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 using flood events to recharge groundwater, to build out the infrastructure needed, to also invest in uh, not just gray infrastructure, but also natural infrastructure, so that we're re- rebuilding these natural processes to most efficiently solve solve our problems. Now, that to me is like one of the things that I took away from working in the Mississippi River Basin is. We, our, our water problems are said to be like very vastly different, but they're, they're really very similar in some ways, like you're getting at, like you've, you've got a, um, you know, overuse of water, uh, at least in localized areas and in the Mississippi, but we've been managing our water for a, a need to get benefit from the land to supply water for, um, communities to, but it, it requires us to be able to like have better insight into the resource itself and to be more closely managing it as a collective. And it's just, that's always the hardest challenge for all of us is like, how do we take this public shared resource and, and ensure that we have it, into the future for future generations and as well as the security we need it for so that we have it when we need it
0: you mentioned i mean that that's a great example the arkansas example and i'm sure we could noodle on that for 15 or 20 minutes (laughs) but you mentioned the dead zone and the dead zone is an issue that that i certainly want to take on at the bywater institute and try to think about new ways to tackle it it's a you know the Problem we don't have in the west except for in very localized areas, right? You could think of the San Joaquin, for example, and there are some places where quality is really a big deal. But what do you see as kind of the hurdles that we need to jump in order to do better on the dead zone? Like, what's yeah, what's the stick?
1: The management of
0: nutrients,
1: big thing, like agriculture. So, another you know, it's another gigantic water challenge and agriculture is at the center of it, just like it is out west. And and working with in partnership with agriculture to better manage the, the nutrients that we put on our crops to be able to continue to be as productive as possible and grow the food that in you know, a quantity and quality that is needed for the population that we have. And you know, I think the biggest opportunity that in the Mississippi is soil health. Like the next bump in our agricultural productivity is going to come from improved management of soil health down to the, the microbe level. Like we we are going to invest in the health of our soil because that's what produces the food we need, but that's what also helps filter and process the nutrients that we put on that land and in order for it to be as productive as possible. So I think soil health is the most important thing in working with agriculture but also finding ways to um take you know as i mentioned like there's marginal agricultural lands that end up being bigger contributors to the problem in the dead zone than they are in productivity for for agricultural production right and so you're seeing some marginal land come out of production because it was being flooded once or once every two years or every three years. And you saw the landowners saying, you know what, this is becoming a problem. I don't want to have to manage a problem piece of my land every two or three years, but I could go ahead and put it into reforestation program like the wetlands reserve easement program and give myself a chance to do something else on my property while still making having some income stream from those payments from the easement programs um, while also growing a forest and having the benefits of having the forest coming back. So uh, soil health um, targeted reforestation and finding ways for us to like further filter out and use less nutrients. And there's a big term for a lot of this, which, um, you know, like regenerative agriculture which there's no real definition about, but it's just an idea of like, how do we go ahead and, and and grow crops that allow the the land to be the quality of that land, the quality of that soil to improve over time so that we're also improving the amount of output that we get
0: from it? it makes a ton of sense and and um, consistent with the way the basin scale way that i like to think about these problems.
1: Yeah, and you know, the other thing is like the Colorado River basin, like we've got this network of people, water managers, states, tribes, the feds, like they're all they they've all been brought together through like the compact and the, the law of the river and it's really easy to be able to like tap into how are we taking this on at the scale of the basin? But the Mississippi doesn't have that, right? The Mississippi doesn't have this unified group of managers or practitioners who all come together around that one shared issue. And I I think that's something that would be really helpful to see the kind of change necessary at the scale necessary for a, a river like the
0: Mississippi. Couldn't agree more. I'm going to toss out a question. This could be like a debate and I want you to take the pro side and then we'll turn to the negative side, but the con side, but is in the context of the Mississippi, we don't need to go to the Colorado for this question is farmland natural infrastructure.
1: Yeah, I would say so. Farmland is a, um, farmland is a big part of the, um, the ability to go ahead and you know capture capture water you you know and soil health is again what i'm thinking of here it's like the amount of i think nrcs put out like the you if you just increase you know the soil organic matter by like 1% then your ability to you know manage your the amount of nutrients that are like coming off your land is just like increased by fifty percent, right? Like your the ability to invest in the soil health leads to the direct ability to reduce the amount of uh, loss that you have in the nutrients that you know are existing in the soil or added through the production of products.
0: Makes a lot of sense given. I mean, I'm a stream ecologist, so I don't have a lot of soil ecology background, but I have enough to to understand how important that is, especially in a three-dimensional context, right? Mm-hmm. Last question on Mississippi and on nutrient management and on infrastructure. What do you see as the private sector role in stimulating progress towards shrinking the dead zone?
1: Yeah, I I think the private sector, I'm just sort of thinking of like, People or companies that are uh, purchasing a lot of the commodities or the agricultural products that are coming off those lands, they have a significant role to be able to play to help work with their supply chains within their supply chains to shift the way that our food is being produced so that it is, uh, you know, regenerative. It's more sustainable. It is. Leading to less externalities, less impact to our environment, and that is a a leverage point that is um, we're just beginning to see grow to a point where it's beginning to get attention of of some of the agricultural producers, but it it's also very much a, the beginning of its its growth, and we think it has a long long build out. But you know, if you are a um ADM or a a uh, you know a cereal you know you're 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 producing cereal for uh the, the breakfast table like you're buying ingredients that you are selling to a consumer and a lot of consumers today want to see sustainability and they want to see that where their money's going is going to benefit people now and and into the future and that kind of demand signal is is critical to be able to help agriculture move in the direction that we think is necessary and it's not just a right now predominantly it's just a government incentives program for agriculture and that's clearly not enough and you know having actors critical like keystone actors within the supply chain like the consumer packaged products industry to be able to say we want regenerative agricultural practices and we want our base of farmers to be able to demonstrate that they're managing their nutrients in a certain way they're managing their agriculture In a certain way, that is a really important um, tool in the toolbox. That is is just beginning to grow, but it's also not easy because a lot of these products, like soy and corn, they're grown at such a massive scale. It's even hard to even track where when you're buying soy, where is that soy actually from? And and so, building out not just demand from the corporate actors, but um, building out the supply chain solution, tracking, and the on-the-ground practices, all of that is is something that needs to be built out together. So that isn't just a new demand on agriculture without the kind of support necessary to help them get there.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. That's something that, that's an issue that comes up day in and day out working with companies. And I I work with a lot of big companies on water stewardship
1: mm-hmm.
0: is this notion of, um, well, you know, if, if we're a food producer, sometimes we don't know exactly where that, where those ingredients come from. Yeah. We know generally, but not specifically. And at the end of the day, the solutions are that specific. You know, you need to know the location in a much more specific way than, than California for example or India right
1: the other i mean i the other thing that comes to mind too is just like you know John Deere or other companies who are investing a lot in technology to be able to, to help ag figure out what's going on with their soil what's going on with their the amount of water or the amount of nutrients that are on a land and so like that sort of remote sensing or drones or the ability to Know more about what's going on with your land and your production and your farm uh, at a micro level is going to also lead to giving you know in part giving the, the the farmers the producers the tools they need to to meet these new demands from corporate actors.
0: All right, last question to wrap up. You know, one of the themes of this conversation, at least early on, was shared pain. Another one was the concept of thriving, and I think you were contrasting it in a way to growing. Um, talk about thrive versus grow in the Colorado and the Mississippi, and how those might be different. I mean, it, I think it's pretty clear in the Colorado.
1: I don't know if I see it as like thriving versus growing. Like I, I, I am not, and nor is the Walton Family Foundation an anti-growth entity. Um, I think that gets thrown out a lot as a solution, right? Like we just need to stop growing, and I I don't think that's realistic, and I just flat out don't don't agree with it. But and I'm not saying that that's what you were implying, but I just want to make that clear, right? Um,
0: oh, that's fine. Yeah, that wasn't yeah.
1: <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah, growth without uh, long-term certainty means you cannot thrive. Right, like maybe that's the way I would connect it is like, if you're just growing and you have no certainty around the long-term s- supplies of your, your food or your water, um, is going to mean that you're always at a point of uncertainty and insecurity that you're, you you will not have the basic needs to enable you to thrive. And, and then both context of the Colorado and the Mississippi River basin we have this added on layer of climate change impacts and and it's in the ground in, uh, underneath us is shifting right like in the Colorado it's like the amount of water we have is actually a lot less than we thought we did and uh, in the Mississippi the amount of flooding events the 100 year flooding events are happening on a cadence that is like every few years now and we're we're needing to adapt to changing climate while also reducing our our water use in the context of the Colorado or better managing our nutrients in the mississippi. and And it's just an incredibly complex challenge, but we're we're beginning to sort of knit together. It's like, well, what are the different solutions? Because it's not just one thing. It's like a multitude of, uh, different actions we need to be able to take to meet this challenge and that to me is like how we get from just a growth mindset to like a a thriving concept and a mindset and it it's going to allow us to be able to have thriving communities in the places that we love um in and, and for for generations to come and that is the kind of management of our natural resources that we you know, we're centered around and we're committed to
0: love that answer. I think it really concisely summarizes a mindset that's, that's not anti-growth as you said, but that introduces this concept, which, which to me feels more human than the word sustainability itself, which is thriving. Right. Yeah. And so I appreciate that. And and I really appreciate having you on the show and, and, putting up with a litany of questions. That was a really fun conversation.
1: I really appreciate it, John. It's great to spend this time with you and be a part of your your ongoing uh, water empire you're growing. It's really wonderful to see.
0: Well, thank you, Morgan. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, Visit our website at audaciouswater.org/podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.